Based on when our race started at 5 a.m. there, my plan was to make it through the first night without sleeping. But then going to that 36 hours, like till 5 p.m. that evening, I thought I could still make it because during the day, maybe I'd be able to get to 36. And then I thought maybe over the second night that that would be when I would start to sleep. That was Jeremy Wellwood, and this is episode six of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Jeremy Wellwood is a 38-year-old trail runner from Winnipeg, Manitoba. He is an athletic therapist and personal trainer, as well as the proud father of two children, ages three and five. He has a background in amateur boxing and triathlon and has completed three full Ironman events. Five years ago, Jeremy shifted into ultra running and has demonstrated he has both the personality and the grit to excel at really, really long events. Last week, Jeremy competed for Team Canada in Big Dog's Backyard Ultra World Championship in Kelowna, BC. Since then, we have been eagerly waiting to hear all about his experience at this very unique last man standing style event. Without further ado, here's Jeremy. All right. So Jeremy Wellwood, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Carolyn and I are actually really excited to have you on because, um, you know, I think you have an awesome story to tell and we can't wait to hear all about not only who you are, but the amazing things that you've done in the last uh, couple weeks. So uh, before we, we get into Big Dog's Backyard Ultra Stories, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your running background? Sure, I guess I grew up kind of as a, a multi-sport um, athlete. So uh, through junior high and high school, I ran track and cross country fairly successfully. But then, you know, I went off to the wayside and I ended up going to university and I was an elite amateur boxer for those like five or six years. I was still running as part of training, but not like competitively at all. Um, And then I just got back into endurance sports in 2013 as I made the decision to try and become an Ironman. Why? What, What inspired you to get back into endurance sport and Ironman? It was actually having a conversation with my wife when we decided when we were going to start to try and have children. So I thought, you know what, if I'm ever going to have enough time to do this, it's now or never. I'm already in my 30s. I should just knock this off the bucket list kind of deal. And how old are you now, Jeremy? I am 38 now. So your first kind of experience in endurance sport outside of track in high school was in the triathlete arena? Correct. I have now done three, I guess, long course triathlons. Like full Ironmans? Correct. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Where was your favorite one? I really loved Whistler when I went and did it there. Mm. And actually, all three of them were amazing locations. And each of them kind of holds a special place in my heart. What were the other two? I did Mont Tremblant and Coeur d'Alene. So all of them were like these beautiful little mountain towns kind of. And very scenic and beautiful days. Were they all pre-kids? The first one was pre-kid. The, the second one, I had one child, and the, and the third one, I had both, but neither of them came to the third one. Oh my gosh. It's such a time commitment, right? The training? Most definitely. 
But obviously you didn't stop when you had kids. You kept going. And not only did you keep going, but uh, you got into more running, uh, primarily ultra running and trail running, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I kind of, I've never heard of ultra running before maybe the summer of 2016. And I just, I saw something about ultra running, like a race that was 100 miles long. And I don't even remember what race it was about. And I read an article and it just blew my mind that these events existed and I didn't even know about it. So I started reading back and there's like decades of races of this. So it blew my mind. And I signed up for two races in January, 2017. I think that's when I met you was around that time, Jeremy, when you came in for a 3D running and gait assessment, correct? Yes. I came in to see you April, 2017. Yeah. After I did those two ultras because I was having some hip problems. Okay. It's coming back to me now. So you, you consider yourself a ultra trail runner. Just give us a, a bit of a, a rundown of some of your highlights as far as trail races or even just long distance trail runs on trails that you've done recently. What stands out to you? Well, the Canadian death race definitely stands out. It was a pretty fun race, challenging. And where's that one? It's in Grand Cache, Alberta. And that's 125 kilometers, correct? Correct. Not an easy run. (laughs) Yeah, and quite a lot of vert for a prairie guy like me. But that's a lot of fun, though. Awesome. So your first race when you ventured into ultra running, was your very first race 100 miles or was it the Canadian death race? No, it was my first race was 100K. And then I actually did 100 miles the next weekend. So I I had two kind of planned back to back. Wow. Okay. So stop for a second. Now, most people don't start out with back-to-back races with a number 100 in their title uh, when they jump into ultra running. But you also had a a really solid triathlon foundation, right? Like your body was used to going for hours and hours and hours already, albeit in a slightly different uh, sport. Correct. Yeah. So did you find that helped you in making the jump to long distance running or was it kind of like a, whoa, what did my body just do kind of experience? Um, I think a little of both. Like That was still pretty uh, jumping headfirst into the fire kind of doing it that way. But uh, that was a little more stiff then than I would be now if I did the same thing, I think. However, I really enjoy the running aspect of the endurance sports. So even in triathlon, even though that's when you're kind of the most wrecked or the most tired is when you get to running, I always found that that was kind of like my breath of fresh air. I felt like, you know, I could see the end almost when I started the run. So going to ultra running, it wasn't really a huge jump for me in terms of what I liked and what, my, what I was passionate about. Yeah, I always think the runners have an advantage in triathlon. I don't know if this is true. I I love your opinion on it. But it just seems like anyone who comes from like a solid running background ends up doing super well, obviously, on the run, which is last. And it, it would be really motivating, I guess, to be like picking people off and passing people at that stage of a triathlon. Is that has that been your experience? Yes, I would say my experience is that I pass a lot of people in triathlons because I am a terrible swimmer. 
<laughs> so, so it's all relative, I guess. Eh? <laughs> so, so I don't know if it's because I'm a good cyclist or a good runner. I would say it's more not a good swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the whole thing just works in your favor. <laughs> well, at least the swimming is the shortest amount of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so you mentioned that you started out with a hundred k and then a hundred miler, and and that was right around the time I met you with a little bit mm-hmm. of an injury. Uh, looking back, would you? Have have done anything differently? Well, it, yes, I probably wouldn't have done the back to back like that. <laughs> I don't want to ask <laughs> a leading question, but I'm just wondering, like, was it worth it to you? Like, did you, did you looking back, were you like, yeah, that that was okay, or would you maybe recommend? Well, I, I probably would have. To be honest, I really wanted to finish the hundred miler for a qualification for a different race that summer. Uh, okay. So I probably pushed longer in the hundred miler than I should have. So that's that's mostly what I would have done differently is just maybe to stop sooner because I, I did end up finishing the 100 miler, but uh, it was not pretty. Which 100 was that? It was the long haul 100. And where is that one? That one is in central Florida. Oh. It's kind of in the Orlando, Tampa region. So flat. Yeah, it's very flat and very yeah. repetitive. I actually ended up going like it's an odd configuration and I ended up going to one timing mat one time too many and one not enough. So oh. they actually ended up not giving me the finish at the end, oh. even though I had done the whole thing. Actually, I did extra, but it was kind of after like it was a few hours later. They're like, actually, it didn't work out and they kind of took my buckle away. Oh, oh that <laughs> hurts. That would be devastating, especially right. you were trying to qualify for something else. What was that? Uh, it was the Canada 150 race. Oh, yes. That summer, remember that? Mm-hmm. There was 150. I, I wanted to try that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, uh, I have no hard feelings with the long haul 100. Okay. <laughs> it was just one of those things. It was a, it's a very odd configuration of the course of the central aid station and three different out and backs. And then you do like a whole bunch, five, like five rotations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, anybody that's, that's ran long distance like that knows your brain turns to mush after a certain number of hours. And unless you have, (laughs) you're really good at keeping track of it all. Did you have somebody there with you that was like, was your wife with you kind of crewing for you or? No, actually, to be honest, the, the race I just did recently, the bigs, that was the first ever race that I've had a crew member with me. Wow. Yeah. So I have always kind of gone to these adventures solo and just had the drop bags available for me and did my own thing. Even CDR. Correct. Yeah, like I had a friend who actually came and did the marathon with me. So we, we ran the first little bit of the race together until we got separated. And uh, so that was good, but I haven't had a crew member. So that might not seem like a big deal, maybe for somebody that, you know, is just jumping into this listening and learning about the ultra marathon scene. But my experience with having a crew member isn't necessarily so much about like mechanics and logistics. It's more about the mental game. (laughs) Having a crew member there can really lift me up and keep me going. And so the fact that you've done all of these races solo, just I think is a testament to your mental strength and your ability to just push yourself with absolutely nobody else (laughs) influencing you at all. That's amazing. Thanks. Yeah, I I do feel like I'm very self-driven. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from? 
I'm not really sure, to be honest. Like, you know, my wife sometimes says that I'm a little bit maybe adult ADHD. Maybe it has a little bit, you know, maybe I'm just a little bit obsessive, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a a little Mm -hmm. bit in my personality, and I find a good release with this kind of thing. And when there's a goal in front of me, I'm a pretty stubborn individual, I would say. So I think that's a perfect segue (laughs) into... (laughs) Let's just talk about Big Dog's Backyard Ultra that happened last weekend all over the world. I think it takes a bit of an obsessive personality and a bit of a driven personality to even contemplate a race like this. So for our listeners who have no clue what Bigs is, can you first off describe to us what the race is and then how you got involved and what happened there? Sure. So Bigs Backyard Ultra, I guess how I would describe it, it's uh, concept. It's a race in Tennessee. I think it's in Bellbuckle, Tennessee, to be specific. And it's on this one gentleman's, it's in his yard on his property. His name is Gary Cantrell. Most people know him as Lazarus Lake. He's famous for his races, the Barkley Marathons in particular. But on his property, he made a loop and it's a 4.167 mile loop or 6.71 kilometers. And it's kind of through the woods. It's a trail that loops around and people have to run that loop every hour. And I guess whatever time you have left at the end of your hour of doing the loop, you can rest, but you're not allowed to restart the loop until the next hour starts right on the hour. And so how do they determine the winner? So the winner is determined by when there's only one person left doing the loop. So if there's two people left and one person cannot go out for the next loop, then the last person does one kind of celebratory loop to do one more than everyone else, and then the race is over. If one person doesn't finish a loop, and the other person did, and that was the last person, then that would be the end of the race. So it's a last man standing event. Correct. Okay, so let's unpack this just a little bit more. This race started out in um, Laz's backyard in Tennessee, but this year it changed format a little bit. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my understanding about his thinking about this was that a lot of his field, about 50%, was coming from out of the country into his backyard for his invitational kind of quote-unquote world championship that he kind of started last year. He started calling it that. So he thought it wouldn't be fair to have a world championship without having the world there. So he started getting race directors to throw races um, in their individual countries to start a world championship, kind of in this virtual year. Okay, so you ended up being on the Canadian team. I believe there were 14 or 15 people on the team? Yeah, 15. 15? And so did you have to do a qualifying race to then get a spot on the team? No. So the, the, to get on the team, because it was quite short notice, I believe, is I, I think it was kind of just happenstance or a little bit random to a certain degree. I think Dave Proctor and a couple other pe- uh, people um, in his proximity that threw the quarantine backyard ultra, they got, I guess, approached by Laz to, to help him with this concept. So I think they were kind of the nucleus of the Canadian team. And then they started to form a team based on runners they knew or runners that they've seen run these backyard ultras previously. Had you ever done one before? I had only done one as a training run, one of the virtual ones. And I only like did it as a training run for 12 hours. 
Okay. Only. Yeah. So just to put that in perspective, can you um, fill us in on until this year, what was the longest anyone had gone to date? Yeah, the longest anyone had gone was at the Biggs Backyard Ultra in Tennessee. And it was Johan Steen, I believe, is how you pronounce the name. And he had 68. 68 hours. Oh my gosh, almost three days a week. Like that's the thing, right? You can't really, like, can you sleep? Like if you do the lap fast enough, can you get a 10 minute power nap? I think that some people do. I think the the gentleman who ended up winning this weekend, uh, the the overall world championship in 75 hours, 503 kilometers, I think he was sleeping. He was running 40 minute loops, like Mm -hmm. even on his third day. 45 at night, and then he was sleeping for 10 or 15. Hmm. Talk to us a bit about strategy. You know, there's lots of different ways to do a run like this. Um, I'm not sure what strategy you used when you were out there. Some of it's going to be dependent on just circumstance and how you're feeling, but you could choose to run the loop quite slow and, and, you know, pace yourself slowly and really not rest and just go back out, or you could run it fast and allow yourself time to rest and and eat. What is your perspective on strategy for that race? Well, I guess my strategy that I wanted to work on was going as slow as I could possibly run, but try and keep it going. Again, I I kind of like going really easy running and not walking all too much. It's just kind of my style. I find that walking, I just have more perceived exertion with walking fast as opposed to running slowly. So I was trying to keep it slow and steady for the most part. And what would be slow for you, like to do the 6.71K loop? Like what would a slow, um, how, how long would it take you to complete that? So my first 12, I think I was around that 44 to 49 kind of minute. And that was mm-hmm. like really slow <laughs> walking like some of it. But in hindsight, actually, I think that I should go slower at the beginning. I think that was a little bit of a mistake even going that fast, even though it felt really easy. Right. It always does, right, at the beginning? Well, and now your your body and you've been there, you know from the other end what it feels like to be out there for, you know, more than 24 hours. So just give us a bit of a spoiler alert here before we get into more details of your race experience. Um, How long did you end up going? How many yards did you do? I ended up with 27 official yards. And how many total miles or kilometers was that? It's 112 and a half miles. I think it's about 180 kilometers. Wow. So, you know, I, that's mind-blowing to me. I mean, I've, I've gone 100 miles, but it's been kind of where there's an end in sight. And you can picture, you can check things off, and you're moving across the landscape. But to go in circles... <laughs> Uh, and do the same loop for that long is just, you know, there's always got to be something that blows a person's mind. And that for me is just mind blowing. So tell us a bit about your race experience. What happened out there? Well, I guess the first, you know, 12 hours just kind of went by. Like we started at 5 a.m. The temperature was already about five or six degrees. Where were you? We were in Kelowna. Okay. Yeah. So we're right kind of in the southeast part of the city. And we were mostly running on a, on a greenway. So a nice, easy, kind of hard-packed gravel for the most part. So very easy to kind of get the mileage in on. Was there any elevation? Not too hilly at all. Like we had, you know, we had to go up a couple little things. So I think it was 14 meters 
the whole loop. Was that regulated at all? Like, did they have regulations on what the worldwide courses had to be? No, just distance. Okay. Yeah, because I think in Mexico, they, they some of the guys did 60-something yards, and they ended up with Mount Everest kind of oh elevation God. charts. That would make it difficult, like being a world championship. Wouldn't that make it difficult if one course was significantly tougher than another course? Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah, the Americans, their day course as well is, is quite challenging. Hmm. So you started out 5 a.m., definitely above zero in, you know, beautiful part of Canada. Did it get hot that day? Like what, what were the conditions throughout the day? No, it was actually surprising how it did not get hot at all compared to when we started at 5 a.m. But it did get up, I think, to eight or nine degrees. But I was just, I was surprised at a lot of my teammates on Team Canada how most of them were wearing shorts most of the day and like pretty small amount of clothing. Because I run hot typically, you know, normally above eight degrees, I'm like shorts and t-shirt kind of a person. Mm-hmm. But it was like I was full tights and a, a zip up long sleeve all day and mm. I felt comfortable. I think some people in hindsight maybe ran too long with not enough clothes because it was deceptively cold that day. Well, and that's what got Dave Proctor out, right? Was mild hypothermia. Correct. If I recall. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you think stopping though for that 10 to 15 minutes and would allow you to cool down? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But again, we, we did have a decent environment like where most of us had like wrap, like a tarp kind of around a tent and a heater in the, in the tent area. So I, I wasn't overly uncomfortable, I would say, but I think that just maybe the effort level compared to what most people are used to while running was just lower, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe they o- overestimated how hot they would be running. Mm-hmm. So describe to us, you do a loop. Um, talk to us about the kind of tent city environment that you had there and what your kind of home base setup was like. Yeah, so it was, we had kind of a horseshoe configuration uh, of tents right by our starting corral and finish line. And we had a bunch of trailers kind of on the outside blocking kind of the wind. It was a very nice little environment. Everyone kind of had their own little space. Um, I was actually rooming with Dave Proctor, the legend. So we were we were tent mates. We kind of had like a, a 10 by 20 huge area. And did he select the team himself? Like, how did that work? I, I think we might have skipped over how you made it onto the team if there was no qualifying. Yeah, so I think it was based on Dave Proctor and he has a, a group that put on that quarantine backyard ultra. I think they kind of went and based on the virtual races that they threw, and they ran a race called the Outrun Rare Backyard Ultra last year. Mm-hmm. I think based on people's performances on that, they selected like a core group of people. And then from there, uh, so I wasn't selected in the first 12. And, but, and then from there, uh, they selected a few more people. And I guess about six weeks before the event, I got a call from um, Dave Proctor because I know him personally and I've run with him before. And he just asked me if I was available, told me where it would be. I said that I'm in and that I would, you know, that I've been training hard and whatever else for a different race. And uh, then I didn't get named to the team. And about two weeks and the day before the race, I got a call from the race director and they asked me if I was still available. And it just happened. I, I definitely was not expecting this. 
So you just hinted that you had been training for another race. I recall, were you not training for the Moab 240? I was. Yeah. So tell us why you didn't end up doing that one. I didn't end up doing that one because of the quarantine rules coming back home. Yeah. I I wasn't too fond of that. And, you know, I wasn't overly excited to go down through the States either to Mm. get there. Mm Mm-hmm. But yet you were training for a race, you know, (laughs) already that was insanely long. So it probably wasn't too hard of a decision for you to just jump right into this one. Not at all. I I really wanted some kind of race or some kind of conclusion to the season because I I really did think kind of until about a month and a half ago that I would be doing that race. Mm. But then reality sunk in that things weren't changing. So it was perfect. Worked out perfectly. Yeah, this worked out insanely perfect for me. (laughs) So it it started perfectly. (laughs) Talk to us about, um, yeah, so so 12 hours in, you're still going in circles. It was probably coming up to to evening and nighttime. Um, I'm really fascinated to just know the evolution of of one of these races, what what your body's going through, what your mind is going through as you're starting to go into nighttime now. Yeah, so everything was still going pretty good. Uh, it started to rain, I want to say around 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock. So everyone like got the rain gear kind of on, and, and I was probably very overdressed, but I guess I'm the Winnipegger. I'm ready for the coldest weather imaginable. So uh, it gets down pretty cold overnight, uh, but everyone seems to be doing okay. My tent mate Dave wasn't doing great, though. Um, and then he was gone, kind of gone in the trailer in between um, the sec- between the yards. So I was kind of on my own. But I was still doing pretty good. Um, I was feeling pretty comfortable because it was about one degree out with some freezing rain. But I was kind of used to cold weather being from Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And I had my like waterproof gloves on and stuff. So I was pretty uh, going good. But then about yard 18, I would say, afterwards, I was feeling a little nauseated. And... Um, my GI tract has kind of been my Achilles heel, in particular this season um, with training. It's kind of been unpredictable for me, and I've had some bad experiences with it. And it started to kick in, I guess, right after 18. So I went through a few loops or a few yards where I was nauseated there, like 18, 19, 20. I was trying a few different things. like I was trying Tums and ginger chews and gravel and, and Pepto-Bismol. But it didn't really seem to be helping much, although I wasn't getting much worse. What had you been eating up to this point? Up to that point, I had been very solid. Like I'd been probably getting back at least 300 calories an hour, if not more. But like a whole array of things. I'd had like avocado toast with an egg on top. I had probably two donuts. I had a cup of soup, maybe a couple of them. I had some real soup as well. I remember in in Dave's kind of um, Facebook Live broadcast that he did, you were showing, you were pulling out a whole pile of stuff that you had there, like some, uh, was it wagon wheels or, you know. I had whipping cream. And cream. Yeah, like lots of different options. Yeah, yeah, cookie dough. I remember that. So um, you were ready for whatever your belly wanted. You had something there, um, but eventually it didn't want anything anymore. 
Correct. Yeah, my plan was kind of like a sports supplement for one hour, like, you know, some kind of candy or a gel or something, and then something healthy for the other hour. So like, you know, like toast or some kind of real food to a certain degree. And then the next hour, like some kind of candy or junk food, whatever I wanted. (laughs) I was trying to have some kind of three hour rhythm (laughs) like that was kind of my plan. I'm trying to put myself in this situation. I mean, the longest I've ever run is a marathon. So this might sound completely um, like a stupid question, but you may have a plan, right? Like I'm going to eat this and cycle through like the the healthy stuff and then the the junk food or whatever. But when you're out there, you're just going to want what you want. Isn't that right? Like, like you can't plan your, when your stomach's going to go south. Right. Correct. And then you just don't want, like, you probably just don't want anything. Correct. That's why I had such a wide array of things. It was just based on like how I felt just whatever I can get down there to a certain degree. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So did you and Dave run together? No. No. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it was my plan not to run with Dave Proctor because he is a very, very fast man. <laughs> I did not think that that was going to be to my advantage. Okay, got so, it. Because I, I think he's more of a run a 40 or 45 minute and maybe get some rest kind of a person. Whereas for me, I felt if I was able to do a 40 or 45 minutes like at nighttime, like later in the race, that that would kind of drive my heart rate and my effort up a little bit too high mm-hmm. and that I probably would not sleep. What's the longest you had ever run before this? The longest I ever did was a hundred miler. But how um, many hours? I think it was, it was 102. It was 28 and, 28 and a half almost. And that was for the Bighorn 100. Oh, okay. So, you know, we all know the importance of running your own race, right? And I think in a point to point or a race where there's a couple big loops, you know, it's hard enough when when you're kind of cat and mouse and jumping back and forth with people. But when you're with the same people going in circles over and over, I think that can be very hard and you have to be very disciplined, like you just said, to make a conscious decision that I'm going to do my own thing. Because if I don't, it's going to eventually blow up. Yeah, it was interesting how how our pack of 15 would kind of cluster up in certain spots, right? And we'd find ourselves with the same person or whatever. But I didn't find that there was too many factions of people running together for a very long period of time. It seemed like everyone was kind of doing their own thing, which I felt was kind of a fun experience because we got to talk with everyone pretty much as we went through. Hmm. I'm just trying to imagine, like, when I stop, if I've been running even like slow and then I stop, I always find it really hard to get going again. So was that your experience as the loops went on and on? It's like, you know, you have your 10 minutes rest or whatever, and then just getting back into it. Was that... Was that hard? Like, talk to us about that. Well, for me, I didn't really find it overly difficult or challenging the way we had it. I guess the way our course was set up is we got off, like, at the end of our loop, we came down this overpass, and we took a a right down or a left turn down a sidewalk, and then we had to cross the street, and then we had to walk, and then there was, like, a grass portion for maybe 150 meters. So like the grass portion over the night, especially just got completely ripped up. 
and it was just mud and potholes and stuff everywhere. So it made sense for us just to walk that. So I found with walking that, and then at the beginning we had to like, we were rewalking that same part. So I found that after I walked the first little bit that I felt like I was back in the zone again, mm-hmm. ready to run. Cause I don't like to okay. walk for too long. <laughs> okay. And so I, I felt like it was, it was good. Um, and I, I was expecting it to be like this, right? Like, I guess I was expecting the stop and the rest and then the start. And I was trying just to, you know, my expectations were there. So I was ready for it. That's great. I just, I, sorry, I have so many questions with regards to strategy on a race like this, because I really think that that's the key. Like, this is all about strategy, the mind game and strategy. So how about things like shoes, socks, blisters? Did you change shoes? Did you wear the same pair of shoes through the whole event? Did you find there was anything different about this type of a race versus the other hundreds that you've done with regards to that? Yes. <laughs> let's talk shoes here. I just gave you like four questions. So let's, sorry. No, let's talk shoes. So, so my luggage, of course, I flew there. My luggage was predominantly shoes. So, so I had six pairs of shoes that I brought. So it was just to be, I wanted some redundancy in case um, it was really wet, which it looked like it might be. And it was. And, um, and in case I was having some problems, like some rubbing problems with the same brand. For instance, I wanted something that I could throw on that was different. Mm-hmm. So I ended up wearing hokas, I think, for the whole thing. But I started off with uh, the most plush hoka, the Bondi. So I went with the Bondi, and then I was having some rubbing on my on like my right foot on my big toe, and which was a little atypical for me. Um, so I think I sw- swapped out of them after eight hours. And then I went to the Clifton and that seemed to work for me. But then after it rains for several hours, I was feeling like it was kind of rubbing on me funny in my ankle. <laughs> that, so I swapped back to the Bondies again, which had dried out in the meantime. And I had taped up my toes a few times. So I did get, I did get a blister. I can't remember exactly when I did that. It was probably around like over 12 hours in. And I, took off the shoes and socks and stabbed myself a couple times to get the blister gone taped up with some uh with some k-tape if one blister is all you have to worry about that's that's pretty good <laughs> it just it, it was a couple but it wasn't it wasn't a big deal at all no it was a non-issue you know when you're out for example in bighorn and you don't have the luxury of unlimited stuff at every aid station. And you kind of just have to, you might have the chance to change shoes two or three times throughout the race if you were wise with how you left your drop bags. But then you're also predicting what you may need 12 hours from now. I, I suppose there'd be pluses and minuses to having everything you could possibly want every time you come through after a yard, because then that adds an element of decision making. <laughs> Did you find at a certain point, you know, there was how many, t- maybe too many options for you? No, like definitely at the end, like when I look at what I have, yeah, I had an excessive amount of stuff left at the end, but I I did like that I had things available and that you could make the decision and uh, you had the opportunity to, I guess, allow yourself to run farther. If you were starting to have problems, you didn't have to wait very long to make the decision. Like for instance, in other races, you know, I might get 
a problem with a blister and I'm like several miles away from the aid station, I might just say, you know what, I'll just suck it up and wait till I get to the aid station. Whereas on this one, like you could just almost take care of it right away. You just walk it into the to the end of the next yard or just get yourself there and you just need at least five minutes and you can just take care of it fast. So I like that you could problem solve and you didn't have to suffer through something for, you know, three or four hours or something. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned you had crew at this event for the first time. Who was your crew? Yeah. So I actually just, it was someone who had come in from locally accrued for me. So I didn't know the person from beforehand, but it was a great crew member. Her name is Carla and she was just there and, and helped me through every yard. So if I needed something like I was like, Oh, I need to take care of some blisters. So she got me like a pin got some bandages for me so I didn't I just had to worry about taking off my socks that kind of thing yeah so it was very handy and and you know we could tell them beforehand too like oh I wanted some avocado toast so she was able to go out to a restaurant and grab it for me and bring it back okay so now we're overnight so you're you're going through the night and I have to imagine that that's probably a tough part of of any race like this is going through the night and it's dark and you're tired so Talk to us about then, because that would have also been around the time that you were approaching stopping, right? Because would it would it have been seven the next morning when you stopped? Yeah, I, I or stopped. Eight? Yeah, I stopped after eight, I think. Yeah, because I started I started that one and then yeah, didn't make it. Yeah. So as you're ticking off those yards overnight, um, did you sleep? No, I did not. So I think some people on the team may have got some some shut eye because they were doing, you know, 45 minute loops or so. But my strategy overnight, I think I was closer to 50 for most of my loops, 50, 51, 52. And to be honest, I wasn't really feeling the physical like sleepy kind of fatigue at that point yet. I was just trying to um, manage my kind of my nausea symptoms. Mm-hmm. and things overnight um, the best best I could because that had completely taken over my whole mind frame. Mm-hmm. So the sleep and the, and the cold that was affecting a lot of others or starting to affect others wasn't really impacting me too much because I was just totally focused on myself there. Mm-hmm. Now, assuming you hadn't, you know, if you hadn't had the GI upset, you have to plan going into these races that you're going to be out there forever. Did you have an idea of strategy? Like I'm not going to sleep for the first 24 and then for the next 24 I might, or were you really just going on feel and seeing what happened? Right. Based on when our race started at 5am there, my plan was to make it through the first night without sleeping right? Just on the basic breaks. And I thought that that wasn't too much of a stretch based on what I've done before. But Mm -hmm. then going to that 36 hours, like till 5pm that evening, I thought I could still make it because it's during the day. And just kind of the maybe the adrenaline of the event, maybe I'd be able to get to 36. And then I thought maybe over the second night, that that would be when I would start to sleep. And I just Mm -hmm. thought that it would happen automatically kind of just from the overall level of fatigue I'd feel at that point. So I was just going to kind of let it go naturally to a certain degree. Like if I needed sleep for a few minutes that I would be able to get it at that point, as opposed to really planning for it. One final question on that theme. Um, Because you had been training and planning for Moab, was that also kind of what you thought your strategy might be for the 240? 
Yes. Well, and partially my strategy for the Moab, like that I'm going to explain here, was based mostly on the pandemic because mm-hmm. they they switched it. Like normally they have five sleep stations that they have set up and they have all the gear there for you to sleep, right? Like they have like a cot and a, and whatever and a pillow and a sleeping bag or blankets. But now this year, because of COVID restrictions, you had to have like your own blanket and your own pillow oh. and these things. So you had to have a sleep drop bag and that sleep drop bag would actually like beat you to the next sleep station. So they had a cool system, but I don't think that I would have brought a sleep uh, drop bag. It would have just been too bulky. And like, cause I, the only way I could get down there was flying. So it wasn't realistic for me. So I was just going to um, sleep on the side of the trail if I needed to. <laughs> Which has been done before. Right. But that, that was going to be my, like, if I needed sleep, I was, my plan was no sleep. But if I needed to, hopefully my body would just do it. <laughs> so. So what made you eventually stop at the 27 hour mark, like 8 a.m. the next day? Like, what was it that, did you just not start that next lap? Or like, talk to us about kind of what went through your mind that caused you to stop? Sure. So um, at the start of the 22nd yard, maybe five minutes in that's when I kind of started having the nausea turn to vomiting. So pretty early in the 22nd there. So unfortunately like the, the ship never rewrited itself for me. It was almost like I had the flu and you know, when you just take a little sip of water to see if your body can handle anything yet and then it comes up again, mm-hmm. that was kind of the point I, I was getting to, so I got through 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. I started slowing down, I think, in the 25, 26, just because I could barely, like, I couldn't run very long before I was almost, not to be overly graphic, but kind of, like, dry heaving. Mm. And just, it was just not not my finest hour. <laughs> I think uh, if anyone was around me, they would have heard a blue streak that I don't even remember. <laughs> but, <laughs> Nobody could have blamed you, I'm sure. Well, and the wall was having a good time. But but anyways, uh, so by the time I got out, so the 27th one, I finished under a minute left. But I, I knew I was, like, I, I kind of walked in the last little bit just because I was just feeling so bad. And I started the 28th, and I made it maybe seven or 800 meters. And I was just getting very lightheaded. Mm-hmm. And... I was a little delusional for a couple hours too. Like I was seeing things a little, so that was happening. And then I I noticed that I couldn't even run straight. I was kind of staggering a little Mm. and then I stumbled and I fell and then I got up and I couldn't really run. Like I couldn't run for more than 10 steps in a row without like having to walk. So then I just pulled the plug kind of, and I couldn't force myself to keep doing the loop. That was kind of my goal was to not turn back around, but yeah, my brain was too smart at that point in time. It was just saying you're yeah. going to time out no matter what you do here. Yeah, yeah. So I just turned around and walk of shame back home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that's a little harsh. But has anything like that ever happened to you in one of these long ultras, like the the vomiting and the falling down, all of that kind of stuff? Is that new for you, or have you? Experienced no, like that I've had I've had some nausea. I don't think I've ever had vomiting during an event. I've definitely had some vomiting afterwards, mm-hmm. um, like in the hours after. But uh, this is my first time during. 
But I have to say that this year, that's kind of been my Achilles heel, even with when you mentioned I did the Mentario Trail a few times this year. Mm-hmm. Like when you have to carry everything like that. Um, I definitely had some trouble with the GI tract um, later on in those, some of those efforts. Why do you think this year has been tough for you? I'm not sure. This is this is the thing I need to figure out. Yeah, I guess if you knew why, <laughs> you yeah, would have figured well, it out by now. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've been trying a few different things, but yeah, this is the, that's definitely my Achilles heel. I think I'm going to maybe talk to a registered dietitian who has deals with endurance athletes or endurance sports and see what happens. Yeah, this is a whole other level of endurance sport, though. <laughs> True, but but again, it's still. Yeah, it's still a little perplexing because I felt like, you know, my legs had a lot more. I felt like I had more, but, you know, you have to put it all together though, right? So my mind had more and my legs wanted more, but yeah, Mm. couldn't put it all together. Did you see some other athletes out there experiencing similar things or like talk to us about what you saw, what kind of (laughs) carnage you saw out there? The athletes on Team Canada, I have to say for kind of just being a very eclectic kind of group, these were like the grittiest athletes and that I've almost ever seen in my life. Mm. Like everyone pushed really hard. I don't think there's many people on the team who didn't push several more yards than what they thought they could mm-hmm. like in that moment. So it's quite amazing performances. Some people push through pain for like 20 hours. Oh my gosh. So wow. one, like one person in particular, I'm thinking kind of with a little bit of a hip issue. Oh my goodness. Like just yard after yard, just unbelievable. What was the longest that somebody lasted from Team Canada? The Team Canada winner was Stephanie Simpson. She did 43 yards. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so two – I don't even know how many that is. (laughs) 260 kilometers, 280? Did you stay around to watch her? Yeah, you know, I, I, I I was definitely there at the end. Yeah, I have a video of her in the last like minute. You know, there's one thing I've just got to, not to minimize your experience in any way, but I've just got to call out the women in events like this. Like uh, they say over 24 hours, the gender differences start to become minimal in in endurance running. And I've got to say, there's a lot of women that, like you said, really showed some grit all over the world in this event. The women on our team, I have to say, I think it was 10 males and five females on the team. And our last seven people, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think was four females and three males Wow. left on the team. And our first person to drop out was a female. Okay. So it means like all the rest, like the next seven people after the first person were all male before any of the other women dropped. Wow. So, so what was the first, like who... Not by name, but like it was a female that dropped out first. How many yards did she do? I believe she did 22. Okay, wow. But again, she she's such an amazing runner, uh, but she got fi- over 59 minutes three times out of the last four yards. Oh, wow. And she was still able to turn it around in the middle of like this rain in the middle of the night and turn it around and come back again. Unreal. What do you think the limit on an event like this is? Like it's gone 68 hours. Now it's 75 hours. How long do you think the human body could go? I think that there's definitely 80 possible, like right now. Hmm. I wonder, like that, that Carl is unbelievable and Courtney is unbelievable. And we have some unbelievable Canadians. I think that could go pretty deep as well if they could put it all together. 
it'd be interested to see them in the same yard against I, each other. I wonder, I wonder if they could go on a very easy course. I bet you they could go 90, 90 plus. Wow. Like 74. Sorry, I just got it in my calculator. 74 is almost 500 kilometers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that the limit is is farther than what they have now. That's for sure. But I think, you know, in at Biggs, that's pretty hard to do. Like, I think that's a pretty challenging course during the day. I think that, you know, if they could do 68 there um, or plus that, you know, you're looking at 90 on like an easy course. So you referenced during the day, for the people that don't know, Biggs course changes. During the day, it's a trail, and at night, it moves onto the road, correct? Correct, yeah. But I even believe the road course at night, I believe there's a significant hill that they have to go up and down. So I don't think it's the easiest course, even at night. Like, it's still easy terrain, but... I don't think anything about a race like this is easy. No, it doesn't sound like it. Would you ever go to Tennessee to do it um, post-pandemic? Oh, that would be kind of a dream race for me. Okay, okay. That's like yeah. a bucket list race for you. Kind of, yeah. All right. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here, Jeremy. Sure. And um, in keeping in line with the, the whole title of our podcast, Being Inspired Souls, you've obviously accomplished some pretty awesome things in you know less than 10 years in the ultra running world and endurance world. Who has been most inspirational to you throughout this process, throughout this, your running journey? I would probably say John Kelly. I think he's one of the more inspirational. I can kind of relate to him. He's, uh, I guess he's a, a runner, but he's also a triathlete. So yeah, he, he was actually a pro triathlete in 2018-19. Is he a Canadian? He's an American runner, and I believe he's now, he runs in, he lives in Britain. But yeah, so he's, he's the last finisher of the Barkley Marathons. He was the 15th finisher, and he's an incredible runner. He's done the Boston Marathon a few times, and he's took his way from being kind of an average Ironman kind of athlete to being a professional athlete. And I just find him really inspiring because he doesn't really seem like the pro athlete type. He's just kind of an everyday guy who can still do it. Amazing. So what is next for you? Well, next for me, I, like next year, I think I'm going to mostly do local races. And I don't really think things are going to change much from what they are right now. Yeah. So I'm going to focus more on getting stronger, um, trying some local races, and we'll see what happens in Western Canada. If we still are open to Western Canada, I would probably try some races. Maybe the Fat Dog 120. That's kind of a bucket list one for That's me too. Amazing, amazing place to run. I've I've only done this only done the 70 miler there, but. Yeah. You know, that's one thing I think we're so fortunate here in Canada that, you know, we may not have some of the big golden ticket races for Western states or whatever here, but we've got some amazing places to run and amazing races. Even if we have to pandemic proof our run plans, (laughs) we've still got some pretty awesome options. True. And I should have a deferral for the Squamish 50-50 this year. So maybe that one's coming up this year too. Well, we'll be super excited to to follow along because you're still young. You're only 38 and you're just getting your getting going. I mean, you've only like it's been less than five years, hasn't it? That you've been in ultras? Yes. Wow. Uh, yeah, you've got a, you've got a 
lot ahead of you, it sounds like. But we have a few, just five really quick rapid fire end of the podcast questions. You ready to go with those? Sure. Awesome. What is your favorite mantra? I like, well, in particular before this last event, I like, it never always gets worse. (laughs) I've never heard that one before. (laughs) (laughs) That is the best quote ever. I don't know who to give it credit for, but. I believe it's Dave Horton, if I recall, but it's, we'll give you credit today. I'll give you credit for that one. Okay. What is your favorite place to run? If you could teleport anywhere on the planet right now, where would you be? I've never been there, but I think I'd go to Chamonix, France. Yeah. It just looks so beautiful. And I just love like long loopy trails that are like continuous. I, I sense a, a pod, another podcast on that topic someday. But anyways, Carolyn. That's yours, <laughs> isn't it, Kim? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought. I, I have a feeling that uh, Jeremy's going to end up at UTMB someday, so we'll talk oh, to him yeah. about that. <laughs> You've kind of referenced a few of them, but do you have a run on your bucket list? Well, again, I'd really love to do bigs in Tennessee. I think that would just be right up my alley in terms of um, what I think I'm strong at because I'm not necessarily the fastest runner, but I I think think I'm pretty stubborn and tough and that I can go pretty far because I love to long run deep. Um, But also the Moab 240, I think that's kind of a bucket list race for me. I think I don't even know if I want to do it, but the Tour de Jean over there in Italy, I think that's kind of a bucket list race in my brain (laughs) that I would like to do. Um, I also think I'd like to try the big race in Tokyo around Mount Fuji. You like to pick them long, don't you? Yes, I do. I like the challenge. Well, I like Carolyn said, I'm I'm excited to see what maybe the next uh, few years brings for you. Do you have a favorite running book or movie if you're not much of a reader? Uh, Yeah, I really like Eat and Run with Scott Jurek. That's one of my favorites that I've read recently. Um, and I really like Killian Jornet's books, The Summit of My Life and, uh, and Run or Die. Yes. The Summit of My Life means a wonderful coffee table book. I can just flip through it over and over and over again. Okay. Final question. What is your favorite post-run indulgence? Oh, I'm going to say like an A&W teen burger. Maybe some onion rings. That's one of them. Uh, It takes me a little while sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes it takes me a day or two. I like ice cream after gelato. That's a pretty good staple. You like Mars Bar Dark. (laughs) Love it. But but normally afterwards, I crave like really good food. I need to get off of this like candy kind of Mm -hmm. junk food train that (laughs) tends to happen during these long races. Yeah. This, this has just been such an amazing conversation, Jeremy. We really thank you for joining us. Before we let you go, um, where can people find you? Are you on social media? Yeah, I am on social media on Instagram, at JJ Wellwood. And yeah, I post on there a little bit about running, a little bit about my family life. It's great. That's awesome. So if you want to follow along on more of Jeremy's um, wonderful adventures, you can follow him on Instagram. And uh Thank you so much for joining us today. It was amazing to hear hear your story. And uh, congratulations and good job. Oh, thanks for having me on. It was fun. Yeah, congratulations. You are a total inspiration. And again, it'll be super fun to see what you get up to next. 
Oh, thanks so much.